Welcome back to Battles of American Civil War with your host, Bang and Dang, and we are moving into March 1862 with another A battle coming off of an A battle last week of Fort Donaldson. Oh, no, my bad. It was Valverde and Island Number 10. And uh, Valverde was the first Confederate win since December of 1861, but that's going to be short lived because they ain't winning another one in the foreseeable future here. We got the Battle of Pea Ridge. Confederate one can hardly call it a win. Yeah, it wasn't even a win. Uh, Pea Ridge and Hampton Roads here today. Pea Ridge, A class battle. Hampton Roads, B class battle. We got a Union win in one of them and an inconclusive in the other. So, uh, best the uh, Confederates can hope for in this one today, I guess. Battle of Pea Ridge, March 7th through the 8th, 1862, also known as the Battle of Elkhorn Tavern, took place uh, near Leetown, which is northeast of Fayetteville, Arkansas. Union forces in Missouri during the latter part of 1861 and early 1862 had pushed the Confederate Missouri State Guard under Sterling Price out of the state, which we've already covered. By spring of 1862, Federal Brigadier General Samuel R. Curtis determined to pursue the Confederates into Arkansas with his Army of the Southwest. Curtis moved his approximately 10,250 soldiers and 50 artillery pieces into Benton County, Arkansas, and along Little Sugar Creek. He said, I'm ready for battle, bitches. Battle, bitches. Federal forces consisted primarily of soldiers. Well, from <laughs> Iowa, Indiana, Illinois, Missouri, and Ohio. Over half the Union soldiers were German immigrants. Wow. Grouped into the 1st and 2nd Divisions, which were under the command of Brigadier General Franz Seigel a German immigrant who had expected to command the army forces into Arkansas. Upon learning that General Curtis was appointed in command, Siegel threatened to resign. The predominantly native-born regiments were assigned to the 3rd and 4th Divisions in order to create an ethnic balance <laughs> between... Segregation. Right, among divisions and their commanders. Like, yeah, Look we, at that. Like, we don't want to work with those Germans. We know what they're going to do in right. 80 years. Crazy bastards. What I mean, that, yeah, about 80 years. 40, yeah, 60, 60. 41, 61. 80 years exactly due to the length of Curtis's... Oh, World War One. We don't have that on count. Well, no, because they didn't kill six million people. Right, not then. Uh, due to the length of Curtis's supply lines and a lack of reinforcements needed for a further advance, Curtis decided to remain in position. He fortified an excellent defensive line on the north side of the creek, placing artillery for an expected Confederate assault from the south. Obviously, that's where they were coming from. I wouldn't expect a Confederate assault coming from the north, but right. Confederate Major General Earl Van, Earl Van Dorn had been appointed as the overall commander of the Trans-Mississippi District to quell a simmering conflict between the Confederate General Sterling Price of the Missouri and Benjamin McCulloch of Texas. Okay, look at that. Van Dorn's Trans-Mississippi District told approximately 16,000 men. Oh, wow. Including 800 Indian troops. Price's Missouri State Guard contingents and other Missouri units. And McCulloch's contingent of cavalry, infantry, and artillery from Texas, Arkansas, Louisiana, and Missouri. Van Dorn was aware of the federal movements into Arkansas was, and was intent on destroying Curtis's army of the Southwest and reopening the gateway he's, into Missouri. He's thinking he's going to be a hero here. Right. He's like, I'm going I'm to be the one to open, reopen like, the gateway this, here. Guys. All that time... We've wasted, and we could have just done this in the first place. Mm -hmm. But he intended to flank Curtis and attack his rear, forcing Curtis to retreat north or be encircled and destroyed. Mm. Van Dorn had ordered his army to travel light, so each soldier carried only three days' rations, 40 rounds of ammunition. What? And a blanket. Are they stupid? Is he expecting to just go in there and route these guys? I think so, bud. 40 rounds of ammunition? Mm -hmm. East Division was allowed an ammunition train. Oh, okay. And an additional day of rations. 
Okay. All other supplies, including tents and cooking utensils, were to be left behind. Right. Sleeping on the ground at night, baby. Hey. Well, at least they had an ammunition train, I guess. Right. Fourth of March, 1862. Instead of attacking Curtis' position head-on, Van Dort split his army into two divisions under Price and McCulloch, ordering a march north along Bentonville detour to get behind Curtis and cut his lines of communications. For speed, Van Doren left his supply trains behind, which proved a crucial decision. Yeah. Yes. Amid a freezing storm, the Confederates made a three-day forced march from Fayetteville through Elm Springs and Assage Springs to Bentonville, arriving stretched out along the road, hungry and tired. Idiots. This guy had the right idea. He just didn't... Uh, didn't plan. <laughs> well, he didn't execute that idea correctly. Warned by scouts and Arkansas Unionists, Curtis rapidly concentrated uh, his outlying units behind Little Sugar Creek, placing William Van Deaver's 700-man brigade, who marched 42 miles and 16 hours from Huntsville to Little Sugar Creek. But Curtis's right flank also suffered from seagulls having sent a 360-man task force to the west, where they would miss the next three days of fighting. Seagull author withdrew a also withdrew a cavalry patrol from the road on which the Confederate Army was advancing. However, How Colonel Frederick Schaefer of the Second Missouri Infantry, on his own initiative, extended his patrols to cover the gap. Look at you, good for you, right. Frederick. Jeez. When Van Dorn's advance guard blundered into one of these patrols near Elm Springs, the Federals were alerted. Still, Seagull was so slow in evacuating Bentonville that his rear guard was nearly snared by Van Dorn on March 6th as he advanced. Still had to evacuate, though. Wasn't good enough. He got, dude's got 16,000 men, pretty much. All right. Waiting until the Confederates' advance was nearly upon him. Siegel ordered his 600 men and six guns to fall back on a road leading northeast toward Curtis's position. The Confederate 1st Missouri Cavalry, led by Elijah Gates, attacked from the south to cut off Siegel's retreat. Mm. They managed to surprise and capture a company of the 36th Illinois, but many were freed when Siegel's withdrawing men unexpectedly bumped into it. <laughs> Siegel managed uh, to fight his way through Gates' men, helped by a blunder by Confederate Brigadier General James M. McIntosh. What did he do? Well, he had planned to envelop Siegel's force from the northwest while Gates closed the trap on the south. However, McIntosh mistakenly took his 3,000-man cavalry brigade too far up a northerly road. After marching three miles out of his three miles out of his way, he turned his troopers onto the road leading east into the Little Sugar Creek Valley. By the time they reached the site where Siegel's northeast road met McIntosh's eastbound road, the Federal General's men had already passed the intersection, thus avoiding a disaster. When the 3rd Texas Cavalry charged, they ran smack into Siegel's main line. Confederates lost 10 killed and about 20 wounded to Federal artillery and rifle fire, and the Union position held their held the held the position right there. Yeah. They said, yeah, you bitches. How, how do you just march three miles off? I, oh, my. What the hell is going on? Both people on this are kind of funky. Ran into him mistakenly, right. so. Curtis placed his four small divisions astride the telegraph or wire road in a fortified position atop the bluffs north of uh, Little Sugar Creek. From the creek, telegraph road went northeast at Elkhorn Tavern, where it was intersected by the Huntsville Road leading east and the Ford Road leading west. From Elkhorn, the wire road continued north and down into Cross Timber Hollow before crossing the border into Missouri. From there, the Federal Supply Line followed Telegraph Road northeast of St. Louis. The hamlet of Lee Town lay northwest of the Telegraph Road, about halfway between Curtis' position on the Bluffs and Ford Road. Curtis made his headquarters at Pratt's store, located on the wire road between Elkhorn. Why is it like we're looking at a fucking map? <laughs> <laughs> so you're going to go three miles west, turn west on wire road? <laughs> so yeah, they're uh, along, going along uh, Telegraph Line. 
Telegraph Road. Uh, Van Dorn sought the federal rear via the Bentonville detour. This ran from Camp Stevens, west of Curtis's position, <laughs> northeast onto the Pea Ridge Plateau. At 12 Corner Church, which still stands today, hey. Ford Road branched east to Elkhorn. The detour continued northeast, meeting the wire road just north of Cross Timber Hollow, south of the Bentonville detour. West of Cross Timber Hollow <laughs> and north of Ford Row lay the militarily impassable Big Mountain. Okay, so this. Uh, well, I guess, it, like, <laughs> I guess if you wanted to map it out on a map for yourself, yeah, you'd know it is, what to boys. do. On the night of the 6th of March, 1862, Colonel Grenville Dodge, with Curtis's approval, led several parties to obstruct the Bentonville detour. Felling trees on the road between 12 Corner Church and Cross and Timber Hollow. That same evening, Van Dorn's army, Price's division leading, began the long march across Timber Hollow. The night march was slowed by clearing Dodge's obstructions. <laughs> yeah. It's like running away from the scream guy and uh, throwing dressers and <laughs> shit in his way. <laughs> Van Dorn's lack of an engineer corps, uh, poor staff work, and soldiers' exhaustion. Yeah, exhaustion. Um, normally we go through all their uh, army stuff, but there's literally so many for each side. I'm not going through all that. We'll name most of them in the upcoming anyways. There's too many. There's too many for these big battles. Right. They got everybody. Just put it that way. Van Dorn had planned for both of his divisions to reach Cross Timber Hollow, but by dawn, only the head of the Price's divisions had made it that far. Oh, gee. Because of the delay, Van Dorn instructed McCulloch's division to take the Ford Road from Twelve Corner Church and meet Price at Elkhorn. That morning, Federal patrols detached both threats, or detected both threats. My bad. Not knowing where the Confederate main body was located, Curtis sent Dodge's brigade of Colonel Eugene Carr's 4th Division northeast up to Wire Road to join the 24th Missouri Infantry at Elkhorn Tavern. Okay. But Dodge, still worried about the threat to the Federal rear, <laughs> had disobeyed orders and pulled his brigade back to Pratt's store, available to immediately reinforce Elkhorn. Curtis also sent a task force under Colonel Peter J. Osterhaus. That's a hell of a name. North to reconnoiter yeah. <laughs> along Ram, huh? Ford Road. Osterhaus's force consisted of Colonel Nicholas Grusel's brigade of his own 1st Division, several cavalry units led by Colonel Cyrus Busey, and 12 cannons. All right, so we got people disobeying orders on the federal side here. Is that Gary's family? No, Gary's just one ass, huh? Yeah. McCulloch's force consisted of a cavalry brigade under Brigadier General James McIntosh, an infantry brigade under Colonel Lewis Hebert, or Habert, uh, and a combined force of Cherokee, Choctaw, Chickasaw, Creek, and Seminole cavalry under Brigadier General Albert Pike. McCulloch's troops swung west on the Ford Road and plowed into elements of the Federal Army at a small village named Leetown, where a fierce firefight erupted. Oh, 1130 a.m., Osterhaus Road north through a belt of timber onto Forest Foster Farm. Witnessed an astonishing sight. McCulloch's entire division was marching east on the Ford Road, only a few hundred yards away. Despite the odds, Osterhaus ordered Bussey's small force to attack to buy time for his infantry brigade to deploy. Go kill yourselves while we catch up. (laughs) Three federal cannon began shelling the southerners, killing at least ten. McCulloch wheeled McIntosh's 3,000 horsemen to the south to attack. Uh Uh-oh. The mass Confederate charge overwhelmed Bussey's force, stampeding them and capturing the cannons. Oh, shit. A little further west, two companies of the 3rd Iowa ran into a Cherokee ambush and were similarly routed. The Iowa's unit's unusual killed-to-wounded ratio was 24 killed and 17 wounded, suggests that Native American warriors killed a number of wounded Northerners. Uh, yeah, so they were on the ground already wounded. Oh, you know Just, that. you know, savages, yeah. savages. Some, perhaps all, of Trimble's wounded Lowen's 
were murdered and at least eight were scalped. Oh, jeez. Look at a little picture of the battlefield there. Just imagine thousands of people 100 yards away from each other. Mm, just fire and Stup- smoke everywhere, dude. Stupidity. Couldn't even probably see each other. See, these, uh, isn't that like in sports? If they would have played back in my day. Right. Imagine if they would have fought war back in my day. South of the Bell of Timber lay Oberson's Field, where Grusel had time to form his brigade and nine cannons on the forest edge on the south side. Saul Ross alertly led the 6th Texas Cavalry into pursuit of Bussey's force. But when Ross rode into the field, his men were fired on, and it quickly fell back. Oh, like, yeah. Ooh. Well, look at what we just jumped into here, boys. <laughs> Grusel shook out two companies of skirmishers from the 36th Illinois and posted them along the southern edge of the belt of timber between Oberson's and Foster's Field. So he's kind of like a, uh, what be like a shield? Federal gunners began lobbing shells over the belt of timber. Though the howitzers were fired blindly, their first shell burst panicked the Cherokees, Uh-oh. who rapidly retreated and could not be rallied. <laughs> They're like, fuck uh, you guys. I ain't rallying these guys. <laughs> Meanwhile, McCulloch had formed Louis, Louis Hebert's, or Hebert's 4,000-man infantry brigade across a wide front and sent them south. Hebert took control of the four regiments east of the north-south Leetown Road, while McCulloch took charge of the four regiments west of the road. The Texan general rode forward into the belt of timber to personally reconnoiter the federal positions. And coming into range of the Illinois skirmishers was shot through the heart, dude. McCulloch gone. Mm. McIntosh was notified after a delay that he was in command. But his staff, fearing that the death of their popular leader would dishearten his soldiers, made the unwise decision not to share the bad news with many of the subordinate officers. Yeah, why would they not do that? Without consulting Habert or anyone else, McIntosh impulsively led his former regiment. The dismounted 2nd Arkansas Mountain Rifles were into the town. <laughs> How are you going to be called the 2nd Arkansas Mounted Rifles, but be dismounted? Now we're dismounted right now. <laughs> As the unit reached the southern edge of the belt of timber, it was met with a mass volley from Grusso's brigade, and McIntosh dropped dead. Jeez, dude. That's McCulloch and McIntosh gone. Wow. That's both their leaders. Done. Jeez, in the meantime, unaware that he was now in command of the division, <laughs> Habert led the left wing of the attack south into the woods. Meanwhile, the colonels of the right wing regiments withdrew to await orders from Habert. And he, didn't even, he don't even know he's in charge, though. Right. It was about 2 p.m. The blind federal bombardment of Foster's Farm and the breakdown in the Confederate command structure began to destroy the morale of McCulloch's division. Yeah, right. I don't know what the hell's going on. Habert's powerful attack was stopped in the nick of time by Colonel Jefferson C. Davis and the 3rd Division. Dave was originally destined for Elkhorn, but Curtis divided his, diverted his troops to Leetown after Osterhaus' report reached him. The four Southern regiments nearly overran Davis's lead in brigade under Colonel Julius White. Davis ordered a cavalry battalion to charge, but this effort was easily routed by the Southern infantry. When Colonel Thomas Pattison's brigade arrived, Davis sent them up a forest trail to envelope uh, Hebert. Habert's open left flank. Mm. Uh-oh. Untroubled by the inert Confederate unions on Foster's farm, Osterhaus was able to box in Habert's right flank. After very hard fighting in dense woods, the Confederates pressed from three sides were driven back to the Ford Road. Uh-oh. In the smoky confusion, Habert and a small party, having become separated from the rest of the left wing, blundered through a gap in the Federal lines and got lost in the woods. Oh, shit. Later that day, a Federal cavalry unit captured Habert and his group. So, all three of the, co- the leaders... Two got killed and one got captured. Dude, this is turmoil for <laughs> the them. Two got lost in the woods. <laughs> oh my goodness! At turmoil. This, right at this point, Command McCulloch's division would normally have developed or devolved upon Colonel Elkanah Greer, the commander of the Third Texas Cavalry Regiment. But 
due to the prevailing command confusion, he was not notified of his superior officer's deaths or capture for several hours. Jeez. In the meantime, Brigadier General Albert Pike, technically outside the chain of command of McCulloch's division, assumed command on the Lee Town battlefield around 3 o'clock that day, 3.30 p.m. Even as Habert was still battling in the woods. No, he was walking. <laughs> Pike decided to lead the regiments nearest to him in a retreat back to 12 Corners Church. Yeah, he's like, screw this, dude. All right. This movement took place in total confusion. Yeah, apparently. Several units being left behind on the field. Oh, geez. Some marching back towards Camp Stevens, others around Big Mountain towards Van Dorn and the rest of the army. At least one regiment was at this point ordered to discard its arms and bury them for later recovery. Oh, my. It was only several hours later that Greer assumed command of the uh, the remaining forces and was at the point and was at that point informed of Pike's actions. Initially, he considered remaining on the battlefield, but after consulting with Van Dorn, decided to withdraw his forces as well and join the remainder of the army and cross Timber Hollow. Yeah, you better get the hell out of there, dude. What a mess! This is just terrible. How the war lasts for four years? I know. Jeez. <laughs> Around 9:30 a.m. Cernel's Cavalry Battalion and Price's Advance Guard bumped into a company of the 24th Missouri Volunteer Infantry in Cross Timber Hollow. Soon after, Carr arrived at Elkhorn Tavern with Dodge's Brigade right behind him. Carr spread out his regiments facing north along the edge of the plateau near the tavern and pulled the 24th Missouri back to the cover. Cover the left flank at the base of the Big Mount, the Big Mountain, the Big Mouth Mountain. Carr spread out his regiments facing north along the edge of the plateau near the tavern and pulled the 24th Missouri back to cover their left flank at the base of the Big Mountain. The 4th Division commander then sent the 1st Iowa Battery's four guns forward to slow the Confederates' advance. Let's do it. Slow that advance. Slow them up. At this point, Van Dorn, instead of rushing cars, badly outnumbered force with all 5,000 of his available soldiers, became cautious and ordered Price to fully deploy his division with the Missouri State Guard divisions on the right and the Confederate Missouri brigades on the left. When the northern guns began firing, Van Dorn ordered his own artillery into action. Soon, 21 southern guns were pounding the Iowa cannoneers. By the time Price's infantry finally began edging uphill toward the Yankee guns, they met Carr's men advancing downhill in an aggressive counterstroke. The Confederate advance stalled near Elkhorn, but Price's left flank units were marching up Williams Hollow further to the east. Okay. It's not working out for the Confederates. Dude. No. Once this force reached the plateau, Carr's right flank would be turned. By 12.30 p.m., Carr's 2nd Brigade, Vandivers, arrived at uh, Elkhorn. The Federal Division commander immediately launched this unit into a counterattack on Price's right flank. Superior members of Southerners eventually forced Vandever to pull back a short distance uphill. 2 p.m., Van Dorn found out that McCulloch's division would not be meeting Price's at Elkhorn. At this time, Henry Little, on his own initiative, waved his 1st Missouri Brigade forward, and the Rebel advance began to roll uphill. Well, it's kind of impossible for that to happen. You can't roll uphill. Right. These events finally convinced Van Dorn to take more aggressive action. Yeah, you're being a little bitch right now. Mm. Price was wounded but remained in charge of his left wing while Van Dorn took tactical control of the Confederate right wing. Uh, but more time was lost in reorganizing Price's division to attack. Right. Meanwhile, Curtis was rushing small units to Carr's assistance as quickly as he could. Carr himself was wounded three times, once in the ankle, once in the neck, once in the arm but refused to leave the field. Huh. In 1894, he would be awarded the Medal of Honor for his actions this day. Good, good for him. Yeah, good for that guy. About 4.30 p.m., Price's left emerged from Williams Hollow and attacked, outflanking Carr's line. All right. Uh-oh. What's Price going to do here? Okay. On the right, Dodge's brigade collapsed after putting up a terrific fight at Clemson's farm. Or Clemens. All right. On the left, <laughs> on the left, and equally hard-fighting, Vendever's men were steadily pushed back to the tavern and beyond. To see Buddy's Lightyear. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's 
got to be pissed off people that go to that tavern regularly. They can't even go to the tavern and drink tonight because it's got a fucking war <laughs> right. battle brewing. In the center, Little led his men forward into the teeth of the Federal artillery. Uh-oh. After being forced back from his position after position, Vandever's men finally halted a Confederate drive at Ruddock's Field over a quarter mile south of the tavern. There they were, joined by Dodge's men, part of Alexander S. Asboth's 2nd Division and Curtis. At 6.30 p.m., Curtis launched a brief counterattack, but soon recalled his men back in the dark. All right, well, we move on to uh, the 8th of March here. Temperatures fell rapidly after dark, as they usually do in the wintertime, mm. making a very uncomfortable night for the men of both armies. Remember, the Confederates don't even have, like, tents and shit. Right, idiots. Curtis called Davis's 3rd Division to Ruddock's Field during the night, when, and when Davis arrived, he was put in line to the left of Carr. Siegel marched the 1st and 2nd Divisions in circles all night, but finally had them camp near Pratt's store. Mm. Asboth, who was wounded in the last action of the day, believed that the United States Army's position was hopeless and pressed Curtis several times during the night to retreat. No, why would you do that? Right. Though his army was now cut off from Missouri, Curtis refused to consider retreat and confident, confidently predicted victory in the morning. Oh. We shall surmise in the morning. I promise. By night march, a number of regiments and artillery batteries from McCulloch's division, led by Greer, reached Van Dorn via the Bentonville Detour and crossed Timber Hollow. Van Dorn was unaware that his supply train had been mistakenly ordered back to Camp Stevens. Oh, no. During the previous afternoon and evening. In the morning, the Confederate Reserve artillery ammunition would be hopelessly Why? out of reach. Why the hell would somebody order the uh, ammunition train back? Wow, dude. What a bunch of fucking morons. Right. I mean, this is just stupid. You guys might as well just stop. Stop right. what you're doing. You guys should be the one thinking about retreats. Right. Stop what you're doing. Go back and start over. Jeez. You better quit the game. Don't save it. You start these missions. In the early morning, Siegel sent Osterhouse to the to scout the open prairie to the west of Elkhorn. The colonel discovered a knoll that promised to make an excellent artillery position and reported it to Siegel. Osterhouse also suggested that the 1st and 2nd Divisions simply march up the Telegraph Road and deploy on Davis's left, rather than retrace the route of the previous evening. Siegel agreed with his advice, and his wing was put into motion. In the meantime... Davis ordered an Illinois battery to fire a few salvos into the woods opposite his position. This provoked a sharp Confederate reaction. Three oh. southern batteries opened fire, causing two federal batteries to retreat, and Davis to pull his men out of the open and back into the woods. Okay. This was followed by a Confederate probe, which was quickly driven back. Oh. Okay. Soon Siegel's men extended into a long line to the left of Davis. By 8 a.m., Asboth's division took its place on the far left. Then came Osterhaus, Davis, and then Carr, with the Federal line generally facing north. It was possibly the only time during the war an entire army was visibly deployed in one continuous line of battle from flank to flank. See, like how it's depicted in most of the movies where they're just standing in a row, that really never happened. Well, in Gettysburg it did. It's possibly the only time during the war an entire army was visibly deployed in one continuous line of battle. Yeah, but one continuous line. Oh, Gettysburg was behind, like, stacked. <laughs> I guess, but... These guys were just in a just straight a big line. Ass line. They're playing right. Red Rover, Red Rover. Right. Send, 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 uh, send that rebel <laughs> on over. <laughs> Siegel now massed 21 cannons on open now to the west of Elkhorn. With Siegel in personal control, the Federal artillery began an extremely effective fire against the 12 southern guns opposed to them. When the Confederate gunners pulled back under the deadly fire, Van Dorn ordered two batteries to take their place. And you still got to have something there, man. That's your problem. You guys' you guys's artillery ain't holding them back. That's your main thing. 
your troops are only for in case of necessary. Well, yeah, the artillery is the one that does the most damage. Jeez, guys, come on. After one of the new batteries panicked and fled, Vandor put its commander under arrest. Oh, jeez. But the southern commander was unable to counter Siegel's devastating fire. Why would yeah? Under return fire from Confederate artillery was ineffective and few Federals were killed. With the opposing guns rendered nearly harmless, Siegel directed his gunners to fire into the woods at the Confederate infantry. Near the base of Big Mountain, the projectiles created a deadly combination of rock and shrapnel and wood splinters, driving the second Missouri Brigade from its positions. I don't know who's quoting this, but it says one of, it was one of the few times in the Civil War when a preparatory artillery barrage effectively softened up an enemy position and paved the way for an infantry assault. So apparently artillerists didn't do that very good, did they? Huh. During the bombardment, Siegel's infantry edged forward so that by 9.30 a.m. his divisions had executed a right wheel and face to the uh, northeast. By this time, Van Dorn found that his reserve artillery ammunition was with the wagon train. Idiots. A six-hour six march away. What Southern, in the hell is going on here? Right. The Southern Command bitterly realized that he had no hope of victory and decided to retreat via Hudsonville Road. He shouldn't have even been in the battle right. in the first place. Whoever put Van Dorn in charge is a fucking idiot. This guy better not be in charge of anything anymore. Or anybody that's around that area. Right. This route led east from the tavern, then turned south. With Price wounded but still in the command of the rear guard, Van Dorn's army began to move toward the Hudsonville River. I mean, Hudsville Road, and some confusion. <laughs> some confusion. That's what they should call the Confederate Army from now on, the some Confusion Army. The confusion. Jeez. Uh, at 10.30 a.m., Siegel sent his two divisions forward into the attack. On the far left, Asboff's regiments drove the 2nd Cherokee-mounted rifles from the point of Big Mountain. Osterhaus was resisted by Little's 1st Missouri Brigade, and then soon Curtis ordered Davis to attack in the center. Not realizing... Not realizing that the Confederate Army was retreating past his right flank, Curtis held Carr's Maul division in position on the right. Van Dorn joined the re- Van Dorn joined the retreat about 11 a.m. Sometime around noon, Siegel's soldiers met Davis's men near Elkhorn Tavern, and a great victory, a great cry of victory, was sent up. Victory! A number of Southerners were cut off and escaped up the wire road into Cross Timber Hollow. Jeez, terrible. Battle's over, boys. Yeah, this guy. You need to say your war is over, Siegel and <laughs> Van Dorn. Well, Siegel's the good guy. All right, I mean, yeah, Van Dorn and uh, Price. Price. I would say McCulloch and uh, well, McIntosh, but those motherfuckers are dead. They did that themselves. <laughs> they permanently put themselves out. They're like, I'm tired of this shit. Yeah. And it's too long to get home. <laughs> <laughs> From there, the infantry retraced their steps on the Bentonville Detour. Several batteries marched northeast into Missouri, then south through the Ozarks. Ooh, that's a terrible march. In the confusion, Curtis failed to understand that Van Dorn had escaped on the Huntsville Road. Oh, my gosh. Jeez, these guys confused, too? <laughs> oh, my. Thinking that Van Dorn had retreated via uh, Cross Timber Hollow, he sent Siegel and some cavalry to pursue in that direction. Instead of taking the forces Curtis assigned for the pursuit, Siegel gathered both of his divisions and marched northwest, I mean northeast, toward Keatsville, Missouri. What the fuck? He's like, nah, I'm good. <laughs> Near there, he requested that Curtis send him supply train at that place. I'm going forward, not backward, he says, remarked an annoyed Curtis to his staff. He's allowing his guys to do this, though? But apparently... And, he, and Siegel has enough balls to call for... Uh, <laughs> hey, give, me your, give me your supply train. <laughs> yeah, I need, need that supply train. Where you at? Jeez. I'm in Keatsville. What? <laughs> <laughs> no. 
March 9th, Siegel finally returned to the battlefield and admitted that the southern main body had not retreated by way of Missouri. Idiots, dude. Federal, federal forces reported 203 killed, 980 wounded, and 201 missing for a total of 1,384 casualties. Of these, Carr's 4th Division lost 682, almost all in its action on the first day, and oh. Davis's 3rd Division lost 344. Oh. Both Asboth and Carr were wounded but remained in the command of the their divisions. Van Dorn reported his losses at 800 killed Jeez. and wounded, oh, with between two and 300 prisoners, but these are probably too low. The more recent estimate is that the Confederates suffered approximately 2,000 casualties in the Battle of Pea Ridge. These losses include a large proportion of senior officers. Oh, yeah. man. Jeez. 800 moited. That's the biggest yet. Well, 800 total casualties. I'm assuming a lot more than um, 200 were killed for the Confederates, though. I'd say four. General McCulloch, McIntosh, William H. Slack were killed. Or mortally wounded. <laughs> huh? William Y. Slack. Oh, William Y. Slack were killed. Yeah. <laughs> William Y. Slack. <laughs> were killed and mortally wounded. Price was Jeez. wounded. Among colonels, Habert was captured. Benjamin Rives was mortally wounded, with two other colonels captured and one wounded. Jeez. Separated from their train supply, Van Dorn's main body retreated through very sparsely settled country for a week living off what little food they could take from the inhabitants. <laughs> they finally reunited with their supply train south of the Boston Mountains, but thousands of Price's troops deserted and returned to Missouri. No. Pike, meanwhile, believing that the Confederate Army had been destroyed, returned to the Indian Territory. Then he thought the whole Confederate yeah, Army was like, like, like gone, dude. Forgot about General Lee and all those well, guys there. That army, obviously. Van Dorn refused to admit that he was defeated, but only failed in my intentions, he says. Oh, I guess with the defeat of Pea Ridge, the Confederates never again seriously threatened the state of Missouri. It was it right there, buds. Yeah. Within weeks, Van Dorn's army was transferred across the Mississippi River to bolster the Confederate Army of Tennessee, leaving Arkansas virtually defenseless. With his victory, Curtis sent some of his troops east of the Mississippi and proceeded with the remainder of his army to move west, or moved east, into West Plains, Missouri. Then he turned south into undefended northeast Arkansas. He had hopes of capturing Little Rock, but this proved impossible because of a lack of supplies and because guerrillas had cut his supply lines. Instead, he followed, uh, instead following the approximate course of the White River, Curtis continued south and seized Helena, Arkansas, on July 12th. Okay. Which I'm sure we'll get to. Right. Curtis remained confident. Exercised effective overall control of his outnumbered army through the two days of fighting. His army was outnumbered. They were outnumbered. And he did a pretty damn good job of uh, placing where they needed to be. Right. He was well served by three of his four division commanders. Right. Those guys, too. Yeah. Right. That was Osterhouse, Davis, and Carr. His brigade commanders... Dodge, Vandiver, and Grusso also performed well. Uh, I hate to be the 4th Division commander that doesn't get mentioned in here. <laughs> right. Siegel's generalship on the morning of March 8th was generally commended. However, his erratic behavior on the other occasions and his attempt to claim credit for the victory led to a rift with Curtis. Siegel soon <laughs> transferred to a command in Virginia. Yeah, you got to get him out of there. They ain't going to uh, fight the I, whole time. I think Siegel did more than what, Siegel did a lot, yeah. than more than what Curtis did. Uh and he ignored a lot of Curtis's orders, so <laughs> Van Dorn ignored logistics and failed to control his army. Yes, he did. Van Dorn is terrible. He should have been kicked off yes. right there. When McCulloch was killed, his division fell apart while Van Dorn absorbed himself in the tactical details of Price's fight. 
His staff lost contact with his wagon train at a critical moment and committed many other errors. Stupid. Of all the Southern officers, Henry Little showed the most ability, becoming the quote-unquote de facto commander of Price's division at the end of the battle. Yeah, I guess he, he, had, no, he had no choice. Little seemed to be all right. Oh, Henry. The battlefield, Hank. Oh, Hank. Right. Yeah, oh, Hank. The battlefield at Pea Ridge is now Pea Ridge National Military Park, found in 1956. One of, his, one of the best-preserved Civil War battlefields. Oh, a reconstruction of Elkhorn Tavern, scene of the heaviest fighting, stands as original. Ooh, at the original location. Look at that. Nonetheless. Nonetheless. The park also includes a two and a half mile section of the Trail of Tears. Dang, that'd be oh. badass. That's going to lead us to the Battle of Hampton Roads, which is also referred to as the Battle of the Monitor and Merrimack. The Merrimack was rebuilt and renamed the CSS Virginia, or the Battle of the Ironclads. So we got some ironclads going at it today, boys. Naval battle uh, fought over two days on March 8th through the 9th in 1862, and obviously in Hampton Roads, a roadstead in Virginia where the Elizabeth and Nanzamon Rivers meet the James River just before it enters Chesapeake Bay adjacent to the city of Norfolk. Okay. <laughs> the battle was part of the effort of the Confederacy to break the Union blockade, which had cut off Virginia's largest cities and major industrial centers, Norfolk and Richmond, from international trade, right. which we established with the, when they took Fort Henry and Fort Donelson. So, uh, Trying to undo some shit that just happened. April 19th, 1861, shortly after the outbreak of hostilities at Charleston Harbor, President Abraham Lincoln proclaimed a blockade of ports in the succeeded states. 27th, uh, April 27th, after Virginia and North Carolina had passed ordinance of succession, the blockade was extended to include their ports as, also, oh, I would assume. as well. Even before their extension, local troops seized the Norfolk area and threatened the Gosport Navy Yard in Portsmouth. The commandment there, Captain Charles S. McCauley, though loyal to the Union, was mobilized by advice he received from his subordinate officers, most of whom were in favor of succession. Yeah, they're like, don't you, do you dare do anything, right. McCauley. You can't do nothing. Although he had orders from the Union Secretary of Navy, Gideon Wells, to move his ships to northern ports, well. he refused to act until April 20th because he was smoking up some blunts when he gave orders to scuttle the ships in the yard and destroy its facilities. Oh, jeez. Oh, so he's on the south, apparently now. Nine ships were burned. Among them were the screw frigate USS Merrimack. Huh? One, which was the old frigate Cumberland, was towed away successfully. Ah. Uh, Merrimack burned only to the waterline, however, oh. and her engines were yeah. more or less intact. That's oh. the problem with them burning in the uh, water. <laughs> the destruction of the naval yard uh, was mostly ineffective. In particular, the large dry dock there was relatively undamaged and soon could be restored. Okay. Without Wait, fr- so did this yeah. dude do it for the Union? I think so. Move his ships. He refused to act when he gave orders to scuttle the ships in the yard and destroy it. Yeah, okay, so he wanted to destroy the facility so Confederates couldn't use it. Right. Without firing a shot, the advocates of succession had gained for the South its largest Navy yard, as well as the hull and engines of what would be, in time, its most famous warship. Right. Yeah, remember we uh, right. we talked about this in the early right. one of the early episodes. It also seized more than a 1,000 heavy guns, plus gun carriages Jeez. and large quantities of gunpowder. Norfolk and its Navy Yard in Portsmouth, the Confederacy controlled the southern side of Hampton Road. To prevent Union warships from attacking the yard, the Confederates set up batteries at Sewell's Point and Craney Island, Craney Island, at the juncture of the Elizabeth River with the James. And we all know this because we've been through this before. Sewell's Point is definitely a battle we've covered. The Union retained possession of Fort Monroe at Old Point Comfort on the Virginia Peninsula. 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 They also held a small man-made island known as the Rip Raps, Rip Raps on the far side of the channel opposite Fort Monroe. And on this island, they completed another fort named Fort Wool. 
with Fort Monroe, went control of the Lower Peninsula as far as Newport News. Forts Monroe and Wool gave the Union forces control of the entrance to the Hampton Roads. The blockade, initiated on April 30th, 1861, cut off Norfolk and Richmond from the sea almost completely. Uh-oh. Mm. Further to blockade, the Union Navy stationed some of its most powerful warships in the roadstead. There, they were under the shelter of the shore-based guns of Fort Monroe and the batteries at Hampton and Newport News, and out of the range of guns at Sewell's Point and Craney Island. Okay. For most of the first year of the war, the Confederacy could do little to oppose or dislodge them. Yeah. Can you imagine that? You guys are that far away from each other. Oh, you can't even, just like, you're waving to each other, but still can't do anything. Isn't that like uh, North and South Korea or something? <laughs> right on the demilitarized zone right. or whatever. Right. When steam propulsion began to be applied to the warships, naval constructors renewed their interest in armor for their vessels. Experiments had been tried with armor during the Crimean War in 1853-1856, just prior to the Civil War, and the British and French navies had each built armored ships and were planning to build others. I would assume so. In 1860, the French Navy commissioned La Glore, I I assume, uh, the world's first ocean-going ironclad warship. Look at the French. Great Britain followed a year later with the HMS Warrior, the world's first armor-plated iron-hauled warship. The use of armor remained controversial, however, and the United States Navy was generally reluctant to embrace the new technology. How the hell is the use of armor controversial? <laughs> yeah, I don't think we should armor our ships. Mm. Idiots. thought it too heavy and sink. Maybe, um, when the Civil or you can carry as many people or supplies. Right. When the Civil War broke out in 1861, Confederate Secretary of Navy Stephen R. Mallory was an early enthusiast for the advantages of armor. Of course, he should have been. As he looked upon it, the Confederacy could not match industrial north in numbers of ships at sea. Oh, shit. So they would have to compete by building vessels that individually outclassed those of the Union. Which a lot of them were, as we've already discussed, way faster than them. Right. Armor would provide the edge. Mallory gathered about himself a group of men who could put this, I mean, his vision into practice. Among them... John M. Brooke, John L. Porter, and William P. Williamson. <laughs> Billy P. Billyson. William P. Williamson. <laughs> when Mallory's men searched the south for factories that could build engines to drive the heavy ships that he wanted, they found no place to do it immediately. At the best facility, the Tredegger Ironworks in Richmond, building engines from scratch would take at least a year. Fuck it, do it. Who cares? Upon learning this, Williamson suggested taking the engines from the Hawk of the Merrimack, recently raised from the bed of Elizabeth River. That's a bit. His colleagues promptly accepted the suggestion and expanded it, proposing that the design of their project, Ironclad, be adapted to the hull. Like, fuck it, might as well take the rest of what we got here and build onto it. All right. Porter produced the revised plans, which were submitted to Mallory for approval. July 11th, 1861. The new design was accepted. Why would you still not have uh, rebuild the Merrimack, but still put engines in um, production? Right. At the same time. Stupid. Right. right. The new design was uh, was accepted on the 11th of July, 1861, and the work began almost immediately. The burned-out hull was towed into the graving dock that the Union Navy had failed to destroy. During the subsequent conversion process, the plans developed further, incorporating an iron ram fitted to the prow. Oh, shit. I think that guy it meant not to burn it down. Probably. That captain that was there. So that way he can... St- He's like, I still like you guys, but uh, I'm with the Union. here and... At least I can at least say I set it on fire. wonder if he got in trouble when, once they found out that they took the Merrimack. <laughs> right. Mm, that sucks for him, huh? During the subsequent conversion process, the plans developed for the incorporating an iron ram fitted to the prow. Oh, iron ram. The remodeled ship's offense, in addition to the ram, consisted of 10 guns, six 9-inch smooth bore, Dahlgrens, 
two 6.4 inch and two 7 inch Brook rifles. Okay. Trial showed that the uh, rifles fire in solid shot would pierce up to eight inches of armor plate and won't. Dang. Their Jadegger Ironworks could produce both solid shot and shell, and since it was believed that Virginia would face only wooden chips, she was given only the explosive shell. Right, I would too. Right. The armor plating original, originally meant to be one inch thick was replaced by double plates, each two inches, backed by 24 inches of iron and pine. Whoa. Damn. The armor was pierced for 14 gun ports, four on each broadside, three forward, three aft. That's there a heavy-ass ship. Yeah. <laughs> revisions, together with the usual problems associated with the transportation system of the South, resulted in delays that pushed out the launch date until February 3rd of 1862, and she was not commissioned until February 17th, bearing the name CSS Virginia. Nice. That, Meet Virginia. That right there? No. Intelligence that Confederates were working to develop an ironclad caused cons- consternation from the Union. But Secretary, <laughs> we're all constipated. <laughs> but Secretary of the Navy Gideon Wells waited for Congress to meet to request permission to consider building armored vessels. See, they're doing it the right way, man. You got to go, Congress. Acts of war has to be uh, right. Well, they're already in war, but they right. still have to get approval. Right. Congress gave the permission on August thirty. I would assume they would. Wells appointed a commission, which became known as the ironclad board mm-hmm. of three senior naval officers to choose among the designs that were submitted for consideration the three men were captains joseph smith Hiram paulding and commander charles henry davis right well the board considered 17 designs i thought it was just three right <laughs> among the designs right the board considered 17 designs and chose to support three hey look at that the first of the three to be completed even though she was by far the most radical in design was swedish engineer and inventor john erickson's uss monitor the monitor which was built at erickson's yard on the east river in greenpoint brooklyn incorporated new and striking design features the most significant of which were her armor and armament instead of the large numbers of guns of rather small bore that had characterized warships in the past he opted for only two guns of large caliber he wanted to use 15-inch guns, but had to settle for 11-inch Dahlgren guns when the larger sizes were unavailable. It's fine. fine. Well, I mean, the other ships got a couple 11s, though. Right. 12 or something. No. These were mounted in a cylindrical turret, 20 feet in diameter, 9 feet high, Jeez. covered with iron 8-inch thick. The whole rotated on a central spindle. Oh, so you can All right. spin around wherever you want. It's and like mo- a tank. And was moved by a steam engine that could be controlled by one man. Erickson was afraid that using the full 30 pounds of black powder to fire the huge cannon would raise the risk of an explosion in the terrain. <laughs> yeah, you don't want that. Right. He demanded that a charge of 15 pounds be used to lessen his this possibility. Good for him. 15 pounds out of how many? 30 or 30? Yeah, half. Then you can go down or up from there. Right. As with Virginia, trials found that a full charge would pierce armored plate, a finding that would have affected the outcome of the battle. Oh. Hmm. Well, of course, but you don't want to risk right. blowing your damn ship up, right. though. Right. A serious flaw in the design was the pilot house from which the ship would be conned, a small structure forward of the turret on the main deck. Its presence meant that the guns could not fire directly forward, oh, and it was isolated from other activities on the ship. Despite the late start and the novelty of the construction, monitor was actually completed a few days before her counterpart, Virginia, but the Confederates activated Virginia first. And as usual with the last battle, they got a bunch of uh, orders of battle for both the Union and Confederate, most of which we'll learn once we come in. I'm not doing all 30 freaking battalions and shit. Holy shit. The Confederate chain of command was anomalous. Uh, Lieutenant Jones, who had directed much of the conversion of Merrimack to Virginia. 
He was disappointed when he was not named her captain. Oh, poor guy. Jones was retained aboard Virginia, but only as her executive officer. That was it. Ordinarily, the ship would have been led by a captain of the Confederate States Navy. You think? To be determined by the rigid seniority system that was in place. Secretary Mallory wanted the aggressive Franklin Buchanan, but at least two other captains had greater seniority and had applied for the post. You know damn well, a bunch of them were applying for that post. You ain't getting. Uh, Mallory evaded the issue by appointing Buchanan. He said, well, screw you guys. (laughs) Head of the Office of Orders and Detail, flag officer in charge of the defenses of Norfolk and the James River. As such, he can control the movements of Virginia. Technically, therefore, the ship went into battle without a captain. Oh, jeez. Wait. Evaded the issue by appointing Buchanan. Oh, so he wasn't even captain of the Virginia. He was just captain of the defenses of Norfolk and James River. Wow, okay. On the Union side, command of the North Atlantic Blockading Squadron was held by Flag Officer Louis M. Goldsboro. He had devised a plan for his frigates to engage the Virginia, hoping to trap her in their crossfire. In the event, his plan broke down completely when four of the ships ran aground, one of them intentionally, in the confined waters of the roadstead. Wow. On the day of the battle, Goldsboro, <laughs> on the day of the battle, Goldsboro was absent with oh, the ships geez. cooperating with Burnside Expedition in North Carolina. In his absence, leadership fell to his second command, Captain John Marston of USS Roanoke. Oh, Marston. As Roanoke was one of his ships that ran ground. Captain John Marston. I wonder if um, Arthur's with him. Dutch. Maybe. Marston was unable to materially influence the battle, and its participation is often disregarded. Most accounts emphasize the contribution of the captain of Monitor, John L. Warden, to neglect of others. Okay. Uh-oh. The battle began when the large and unwieldy CSS Virginia steamed into Hampton Roads on Uh-oh. the morning of March 8, 1862. Uh-oh. Captain Buchanan intended to attack as soon as possible. Damn right. Virginia was accompanied from her moorings on the Elizabeth River by Raleigh and Beaufort and was joined at Hampton Roads by the James River Squadron, which consisted of the Patrick, the Henry, the Jamestown, and Teaser. When they were passing the Union batteries at Newport News, Patrick Henry was... Oh, Patrick Henry is uh, one boat. Sorry, guys. Patrick Henry is temporarily disabled by a shot in her boiler that killed four of the crew. Ah. After repairs, she returned and rejoined the others. At this time... I wouldn't be the one that wants to be in the boilers. No. At this time, the Navy, Navy... The Navy, Navy. At this time, the Union Navy had five warships in the roadstead, in addition to several support vessels. The Sloop of War, Cumberland, and Frigate Congress were anchored in a channel near Newsport, Newport News. The sail frigate, St. Lawrence, and the steam frigates, Roanoke and Minnesota, were near Fort Monroe, along with the store ship, Brandywine. The latter three got underway as soon as they saw Virginia approaching, but all soon ran aground. Mm. Oh, wow. St. Lawrence and Roanoke took no further important part in the battle. <laughs> like, all right. That's it for you guys. Virginia headed directly for the Union Squadron. They're like, we're, we're, dude, they feel like Iron Man right now. All right. The battle opened when uh, Union tug Zawave fired on the advancing enemy and Beaufort replied. This preliminary skirmishing had no effect. None. Virginia did not open fire until she was within easy range of Cumberland. Right. Return fire from Cumberland and Congress bounced off the iron plates without penetrating. Oh, Although later some of Cumberland's gunfire lightly damaged the Virginia, though. Okay. Virginia rammed Cumberland below the waterline and she sank rapidly. Oh, shit. Gallantly fighting her guns as long as they were above water, according to Buchanan. Oh, that's so they beautiful. Were, they were right. blasting as they could. Hey, man. Know? You got to do what you got to do. Mm. She took 120 seamen down with her. Jeez. Those wounded brought the casualty toward uh, 150. Ramming Cumberland nearly resulted in the sinking of Virginia as well. Oh. 
Virginia's bow ram got stuck oh. in the enemy's ship's hole. And as Cumberland listed and began to go down, she almost pulled Virginia under her, under oh, with shit. her. Dang. At the time the vessels were locked, one of Cumberland's anchors was hanging directly above the fore deck of Virginia. Had it come loose, the two ships might have gone down together. Virginia broke free, though, however, her ram breaking off as she backed well, away. Well, no more ram for the Virginia. But, jeez, right. that anchor, somebody could have cut it down, and Dude, bam, Virginia done. would have been done. Done. I think all that time to get that ship ready. And then just the first the first <laughs> act of the, anything it does is gone. They took down a major ship. Lots of all ram, though. Mm-hmm. Buchanan next turned Virginia on to Congress. Seeing what had happened to Cumberland, Lieutenant Joseph B. Smith, captain of the Congress, ordered her ship grounded in shallow water. By this time, the James River Squadron, commanded by John Randolph Tucker, had arrived and joined Virginia in the attack on Congress. After an hour of unequal combat, the badly damaged Congress surrendered. Oh, shit. While the surviving crewmen of Congress were being ferried off the ship, a Union battery on the North Shore opened fire on the Virginia. Oh, shit. In retaliation, Buchanan ordered Congress fired upon with hot shot. Cannonballs heated red hot. Congress caught fire and burned throughout the rest of the day. Damn. He was like, you want to fire at me? I'll burn your damn ship. Right. Near midnight, the flames reached her magazine, and she exploded and sank. There she is. Stern first. Personnel losses included 110 killed and missing and presumed drowned. Another 26 were wounded, of whom 10 died within days. Jeez. Although she had not suffered anything like the damage she had inflicted, Virginia was not completely unscathed. Well, yeah, shots from the Cumberland Congress and Union troops ashore had riddled her smokestack, reducing her already low speed. Right. Two of her guns were disabled and several armor plates had been loosened. Well, I mean, it's a good learning uh, exercise, I guess. Two of her crew were killed and more were wounded. One of the wounded was Captain Moore. <laughs> more and more. And others. It could be just three. Jeez. Uh, one of the wounded was Captain Buchanan himself, whose left thigh was pierced by a rifle shot. Mm. Meanwhile, the James River Squadron had turned its attention to the Minnesota, which had left Fort Monroe to join in the battle and had run aground itself. Jeez, Running geez. aground. All right. After Virginia had dealt with the surrender of Congress, she joined the James River Squadron despite her damage. Because of her deep draft and the falling tide, Virginia was unable to get close enough to be effective, mm. and darkness prevented the rest of the squadron from aiming their guns to any effect. The attack was the attack was thereof suspended. Virginia left with the expectation of returning the next day and completing the task. She retreated into safety to Confederate-controlled waters <clears throat> off Sewell's Point for the night, but had killed 250 enemy sailors and had lost two. Only two, wow. Meanwhile, the Union had lost two ships and three were aground. United States Navy's greatest defeat, and it would remain so until World War II caused panic in Washington. Right. As Lincoln's cabinet meant to discuss the disaster, the frightened Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, told the others that Virginia might attack East Coast cities. Oh, jeez. Fucking uh, uh, fear porn and everybody. And even shell the White House before the meeting ended. Get out of here. Wells assured his colleagues that they were safe as the ship could not traverse the Potomac, obviously. He added that the Union also had an ironclad, and that it was headed... To meet Virginia. Meet oh, Virginia. <laughs> I can't wait to meet Virginia. Oh, dude, two ironclads coming face to face for the first time here. Ooh, love it. Well, she left her ram with us. <laughs> she can't be very fucking tough. She took Cumberland and, and Congress too. <laughs> Minnesota. And it's whole damn crew. Roanoke. <laughs> I can't wait to meet Virginia. Anyhow, both sides used the time to prepare for the next day. 
Virginia put her wounded ashore and underwent temporary repairs. Captain Buchanan was among the wounded. So command on the second day fell to Executive Officer Lieutenant Catsby Ap Roger Jones. Jones proved to be no less aggressive than the man he replaced. He's got what he wanted anyway. Right. While Virginia was being prepared for renewal of battle, and while Congress was still ablaze, Monitor, commanded by Lieutenant John L. Warden, arrived in Hampton Roads. Uh-oh. Dude, <laughs> uh, you could just picture like a movie scene. Right. Everybody looking like, what is that? What is that? What is that? What the hell is that? What is that? The Union Ironclad had been rushed to Hampton Roads in hopes of protecting the Union fleet and preventing Virginia from threatening Union cities. Right. Captain Warden was informed that his primary task was to protect Minnesota. So Monitor took up position near the grounded Minnesota and waited. All of all on board felt we had a friend that would stand by us in our hour of trial, wrote Captain Gershom Jock Van Brunt, <laughs> who was Minnesota's commander, in his official report the day after the engagement. Okay. He said we got a buddy we got a buddy system here in this right. in this river. Well the very next morning, dawn, March ninth. 1862. Uh, Virginia don't even know that. She's about to face uh, another right. another Godzilla coming. All right. Virginia left her anchorage at Sewell's Point and moved uh, to attack Minnesota. Still aground. She was followed by three ships of the James River Squadron. They found her. They found their course blocked, however, Ooh. by the newly arrived Monitor. They're like, what the hell is this? At first, Jones believed the strange craft, which one Confederate sailor mocked as a cheese on a raft... To be a boiler being towed from the Minnesota, not realizing the nature of his opponent. Mm. It's like, what the hell is that? I was trying to tow it out. Soon, however, it was apparent that he had no choice but to fight her. The first shot of the engagement was fired at Monitor by Virginia. The shot flew past Monitor and struck the Minnesota. Oh, shit. <laughs> which answered with a broadside. This began what would be a lengthy engagement. Again, all hands were called to quarters, and when she, when she approached within a mile of us, I opened upon her with my stern guns and made a signal to the monitor to attack the enemy, Van Brunt added to his official oh, report. Geez. Oh, these guys. After fighting for hours, mostly at close range, neither could overcome the other. The armor of the both ships proved adequate. Nice. In part, this was because each was handicapped in her offensive capabilities. Right. Buchanan in Virginia had not expected to fight another armored vessel, so his guns were supplied only with shell rather than armor-piercing shot. Damn you, Scoob Steve. Monitor's guns were used with standard service charge. Yeah, if they would have done the... Uh, 15-pounders. The, they would have done the 30-pounds, they would have right. got through. Which was not strong enough to pierce the armor. Tests conducted after battle showed that the Dahlgren guns could be operated safely and efficiently with charges as much as 30 pounds. Oh, now they know. Now they know. During the battle, acting master Louis N. Stoddard and officer Steiners. Well, maybe safely, like you're shooting it here and there, but not when you're shooting that Constantly. many. Yeah, I don't, I don't believe that. Well, maybe. I don't believe that. It's only 30 pounds. It's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> During the battle, acting master Louis N. Stoddard and officer Steimers and Truscott were inside the gun turret. Discussing the course of action and while leaning against the turret's inside side, it took a direct hit. Oh, Knocked unconscious, Stoddard, who was replaced by Steimers, was taken below, where it took him an hour to regain consciousness. Oh, shit. Stoddard thus became the first man injured during the battle. Okay. The battle finally ceased when a shell from Virginia stuck the pilot house of Monitor and exploded, driving fragments of paint and iron through the viewing slits into the warden's eyes, into warden's eyes, and a temporary blinding him. Dang. Jeez. 
as no one else could see the command. Right, why would you not have another guy that could back him up? Right, as no one else could, as no one else could see to command the ship, Monitor was forced to draw off. The executive officer, Lieutenant Samuel Dana Green, took over, and Monitor returned to the fight. Right, there we go, nice. In the period of the command confusion, however, the crew of Virginia believed that their opponent had withdrawn. Oh, oh no. Although Minnesota was still aground, the falling tide meant that she was out of reach. She ain't getting reached to her no more. Furthermore, Virginia had suffered enough damage to require extensive repair anyhow. Oh, sure, they were side by side. Convinced that a ship had won the day, Jones ordered her back to Norfolk. At about this time, Monitor returns and uh-uh, only to discover her opponent apparently giving up the fight. Jeez, so now they both think they're retreating. Convinced that Virginia was quitting with orders only to protect Minnesota and not to risk the ship unnecessarily, Green did not pursue. Oh, he uh. should have went after it. Thus, each side misinterpreted the moves of the other, and a result, each claimed victory. <laughs> oh, no shit. <laughs> so I guess they were technically right, because both of them uh, went away. I would say the Confederate won that little battle there. Yeah, Confederates did a lot of damage there. Confederate Secretary of Navy Stephen Mallory wrote to Confederate President Davis of the action. He said, The conduct of the officers and men of the squadron reflects unfading honor upon themselves and upon the Navy. The report will be read with deep interest, and its details will not fail to rouse the ardor and nerve the armors of our gallant seamen. There we go. It will be remembered that the Virginia was a novelty in naval architecture, wholly unlike any other ship that ever floated. Well, except for the monitor that literally was right there. but They didn't know that. Of course he did. Right now. Of course he did. Right. He's doing this after the battle. Right now. Right. Right. But still, right. He still thinks it's better. Oh, obviously. Right? That her heaviest guns were equal novelties and ordnance, and that her motive, power, and obedience to her helm were in, untried, mm. and her officers and crew strangers, comparatively to the ship and to each other, and yet, under all these disadvantages, the dashing courage and consummate professional ability of flag officer Buchanan and his associates <laughs> achieved the most remarkable victory which naval annals record. Oh shit, dude! You're such a you're such a blowhard, fucking <laughs> Stephen Mallory. This guy. <laughs> and Washington believed that Monitor had vanquished Virginia was so strong that Warden and his men were awarded the thanks of Congress. They said thank you <laughs> uh, from Congress. It said resolved that the thanks of Congress and the American people are due and hereby tendered to Lieutenant J. L. Warden of the United States Navy and to the officers and men of uh, the ironclad gunboat monitor under his command for the skill and gallantry exhibited by them in the remarkable battle between the monitor and the rebel ironclad Merrimack. Oh, so they're not even referring it to as the Virginia. No. It's still the Merrimack to them, huh? Of course it is, right? During the two-day engagement, USS Minnesota shot off 78 rounds of 10-inch solid shot, 67 rounds of 10-inch shells with 15-second fuse. 169 rounds of 9-inch solid shot, 189-inch shells with 15-second fuse, 35 8-inch shells with 15-second fuse, 5,567.5 pounds of service powder, three crew members, Alexander Winslow, Henry Smith, and Dennis Harrington were killed during the battle and 16 were wounded. On the monitor's crew, Quartermaster Peter Williams was awarded the Medal of Honor for his actions. Hmm. Good for him. Virginia remained in dry dock for almost a month getting repairs for battle damage as well as minor modifications to improve her performance. Yeah, right. see, now they know. Like, well, this happened. We should probably shore this up here. On April 4th, she was able to leave Drive Dock. Dry Dock. Buchanan, still recovering from his wound, had hoped that Catsby Jones would be picked to succeed him, and most observers believe that Jones's performance during the battle was outstanding. Uh-oh, though. 
The seniority system for promotion in the Navy scuttled his chances, however. Oh, jeez. And the post went to the 67-year-old Commodore Josiah Tatnall III. Okay. Monitor, not severely damaged, remained on duty. Look at that. Monitor. And they're trying to say that the... I mean, the Virginia did fight for a whole day before Monitor got there, though. Right. So. I don't know if uh, the Virginia would have had its shells. I mean, uh, its bullets instead of shells. It might have took down the old uh, Monitor. Like his antagonist Jones, Green was deemed too young to remain as captain. The day after the battle, he was replaced by Lieutenant Thomas Oliver Selfridge, Jr. Two days later, Selfridge, in turn, relieved by Lieutenant William... What the fuck? William Nicholson Jeffers. By late March, the Union blockade fleet had been augmented by hastily refitted civilian ships, including the powerful SS Vanderbilt. Sounds like a powerful name, doesn't it? SS Vanderbilt. The SS Arago. The SS... Illinois, and the SS Erickson. How come they call it the USS? These had been outfitted with rams and some iron plating. By late April, the new ironclads USRC E.A. Stevens and USS Galena had also joined the blockade. Oh, goodness. Some new ironclads. Each side considered how best to eliminate the threat posed by its opponent, and after Virginia returned, each side tried to goad the other into attacking under unfavorable circumstances. Both captains declined the opportunity to fight in waters not of their own choosing, obviously. Jeffers, in particular, was under positive orders not to risk his ship. Consequently, each vessel spent the next month in what amounted to posturing. Hey, bitch. Hey, right. hey, bitch. <laughs> not only did the two ships not fight each other, neither ship ever fought again after March 9th. What? Uh, really? Huh. Well, the end came first for Virginia. Because the blockade was unbroken, Norfolk was little strategic used to the Confederacy, and the preliminary right. plans were laid to move the ship up to the James River to the vicinity of Norfolk. Before adequate preparations could be made, the Confederate Army under General Major uh, under Major General Benjamin Huger abandoned the city on the 9th of May without consulting anyone from the Navy. <laughs> Virginia's draft was too great to permit her to pass up the river, which had a depth of only 18 feet, oh, geez. and then only under favorable circumstances. Oh, jeez. She was trapped and could only be captured or sunk by the Union Navy. Rather than allow either, Tatnall decided to destroy his own ship. Oh, jeez. He what? had her towed down to Craney Island in Portsmouth, where the gang were taken ashore, and then she was set afire. She burned throughout the rest of the day and most of the following night. Shortly before dawn, the flames reached her magazine, and she kaboomed. That's ridiculous. These idiots. There it is, too, kaboomy. These idiots. I mean, you can't use it. Wow. They wanted to take it. After the blockade was gone, but right. they sure they ain't getting to the rock blockade, so what the fuck are you going to do? Oh, Monitor, likewise, did not survive the year. She was ordered to Beaufort, North Carolina on Christmas Day to take part in the blockade there. While she was being towed down the coast under the command of her fourth captain, Commander John P. Bankhead, the wind increased, and with its waves, with no high tides, the Monitor no took on sides. water. Right. With no high sides, the monitor took on water. Yeah, we saw it. It was like a damn sub, pretty much. All right. Soon the water in the hold gained on the pumps and then put out the fires in her engines. Mm. The order was given to the abandoned ship. Most men were rescued by USS Rhode Island. But 16 went down with her when she sank in the early hours of December 31st, 1862. Happy damn. fucking New Year. Right. There's your New Year. The victory claims... What's your New Year's resolution? To die. <laughs> the victory... Sink with the ship. <laughs> The victory claims that were made by each side in the immediate aftermath of the battle, as both were based on misinterpretations of the opponent's behavior, have been dismissed by present-day historians. Okay. They agree that the result of the Monitor-Virginia encounter was not a victory for either side, obviously. All right. 
as the combat between ironclads was a primary was the primary significance of the battle the general verdict is that the overall result was a draw right all would acknowledge that the southern fleet inflicted far more damage than it received which would ordinarily imply that they had gained a tactical victory right compared to other civil war battles the loss of men and ships for the union navy would be considered a clear defeat yeah on the other hand, the blockade was not seriously threatened, so the entire battle can be regarded as an assault that ultimately failed. Right. Nothing was accomplished right. there, but right. killed killed right. a few men. That was it. Right, right, right. However, However, initially after the Battle of Hampton Roads, both Confederate and Union media claimed victory well, for their own they sides. Yeah, morale, man. A headline in Boston newspaper the day after the battle read, The Merrimack Driven Back by the Steamer. Mm. Implying a Union victory, while Confederate media focused on their original success against wooden ships. Yeah, they didn't mention, they, didn't, they weren't going to mention the um, monitor at all. They're like, we took out some wooden chips, though. Uh, yeah. Despite the battle ending in a stalemate, it was seen by both sides as an, an opportunity to raise wartime morale. Of course. Especially since the ironclad ships were an exciting naval innovation that intrigued citizens. Hey. They want to know that, right. they're, that, they're, new that they're working. It's right. working, yeah. The evaluation of strategic results is likewise disputed. The blockade was maintained, even strengthened, and Virginia was bottled up in Hampton Roads. Because of a decisive Confederate weapon was negated, some have included that the Union could claim a strategic victory. Confederate advocates can counter, however, by arguing that Virginia had a military significance larger than the blockade, which was only a small part of the war in Tidewater, 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 Virginia. Her mere presence was sufficient to close the James River to federal incursions. Okay. Was it, though? All right. She also imposed other constraints on the Peninsula campaign, then being mounted by the Union Army under General George B. McClellan, who worried that she could interfere with his position on the New York River. Or the York River. Right. Although his fears were baseless, they continued to affect the movements of his army until Virginia was destroyed. Yeah, so just the mere presence of the Virginia got these right. people all in their feelings. Right. <laughs> all in their feelings. Both days of the battle attracted attention from almost all the world's navies. Right. Oh, yeah. They're like, how oh, we, these two, this is probably the first time two uh, right. ironclads have come together. All right, check this shit out. U.S. Monitor became the prototype for the Monitor warship type. Okay. She thus became the first of two ships whose names were applied to entire classes of their successors, the other being the HMS, yeah, the Dreadnoughts. Right. Uh, many more were built, including river monitors, and they played key roles in Civil War battles on the Mississippi and James Rivers coming up. Okay. The U.S. immediately started the construction of 10 more monitors. That's 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 what the Union could do, dude. Right. Like, we'll just get 20 of these bitches right. out there. Uh, based on Erickson's, Erickson's original larger plan, known as the Passaic Class Monitors. Yeah, they're like, we got it now. We already know. We need to make them a little. We need to make them a little higher. Uh, the deck a little higher uh, up so they don't take on water and sink. Right, and these ships are like a blessing in disguise for the United States because without the Civil War, there they would still be behind everybody else because mm-hmm. nobody in the Union wanted to do it. They're they like, weren't. Nah. They weren't. They didn't have no nah. need to build them. Right, and they're like, nah, we don't need that. And the South were like, shit, we're building one of those sons of bitches. And the North was like, damn, that's cool. I guess we got to. Right, and then bam, like what it did. The vulnerability of wooden hulls to armored ships was noted particularly in Britain and France, where the wisdom of the planned conversion of the battle fleet to armor was given a powerful demonstration. Yeah. Another feature that was emulated was not so successful. Impressed by the ease with which Virginia had sunk Cumberland, naval architects began to incorporate rams into their uh, hull designs. Why not? The first purpose-built ram in the modern era was the French armored ram Toro, 1863 whose guns were said to have the sole function of preparing the way for the ram. Nice. Should we be able to shoot in front of her? 
The inclusion ram- the inclusion of the Rams in warship hull design persisted almost to the outbreak of World War One. Yeah, then they probably decided it's not wise just to go running full Ramming. speed into a damn another ship. <laughs> The name of the warship that served the Confederacy in the Battle of Hampton Roads has been a continuing source of confusion and some contention. She was originally a screw frigate in the United States Navy carrying the name USS Merrimack, obviously. All parties continued to use the name after her capture by secessionists while she was being uh, rebuilt as an ironclad. When her conversion was almost complete, her name was officially changed to Virginia, right? Despite the official name change, Union accounts persisted in calling it Merrimack while Confederates caused it... Oh, they called it either Virginia or Merrimack without the K at the right. end. You know, they got to at least take a letter out. Right. That's not how we roll. The alliteration of Monitor and Merrimack has persuaded most popular accounts to adopt the familiar name, even when it's acknowledged to be technically incorrect. A CSS Merrimack did actually exist. Without the K. She was a paddle wheel steamer named for the victor, as most Southerners saw it at Hampton Roads. Hmm. She was used to buy, uh, for running the blockade until she was captured and taken into federal service, still named Merrimack. Her name was a spelling variant of the river, namesake of the USS Merrimack. No shit. Both spellings are still in use around the Hampton Roads area. <laughs> All right. Looks Just like, like Mackinac. Mackinac, Mackinac. A small community in Montgomery County, Virginia, near the location where the iron for the Confederate Iron Clan was forged, is now known as Merrimack. Some of the iron mine there and used in the plating on the Confederate ironclad is displayed at the Norfolk Naval Shipyard in Portsmouth. The anchor of Virginia sits on the lawn in front of the Museum of Confederacy in Richmond. Oh, good for them. Um, after resting undetected on the ocean floor for 111 years, the wreck of Monitor was located by a team of scientists in 1973. Well, that's cool. The remains of the ship were found upside down, 16 miles off of Cape Hatteras, on a relatively flat sandy bottom at a depth of about 240 feet. 87, the site was declared a National Marine Sanctuary, the first shipwreck to receive this distinction. Good for them. Not even, well, I guess you can't do that for the Titanic. They didn't even find that until the 80s anyways. Right. Um, that's cool. I wonder if it's fully intact. Right, and they got to have a way to at least bring it back up. I don't right? think you can raise it after 111 years. Yeah, it'd be rough. Because of the monitor's advanced station. Yep. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> because of the monitor's advanced state of deterioration, time of the recovery remaining significant artifacts and ship components became critical. Yeah. Numerous fragile artifacts, including the in- innovative turret and its two Dahlgren guns, an anchor, a steam engine, propeller, have been recovered. Nice. They were transported back to Hampton Roads to the, Mar- the, the Mariners, yeah, Mariners Museum in Newport News, Virginia. Oh, that would be cool. Right. Uh, where they were treated in special tanks to stabilize the metal. Nice. Mm. It was reported that it would take about 10 years for the metal to completely stabilize. Wow. The new USS Monitor Center at the Mariner's Museum officially opened on the 9th of March, 2007. You can go see that stabilized metal now. And a full-scale copy of U.S. Monitor, their original recovery and artifacts and related items are now on display. Full-scale copy, so they got the whole ship there, dude. Dang, that's cool. badass. The Battle of Hampton Roads was a significant event in both naval and Civil War history that has been detailed in many books, televised Civil War documentaries, and in film to include TNT's 1991 film ironclads oh let's check that out in new york city where the designer of the monitor john erickson died in march of 1889 a statue was commissioned by the state to commemorate the battle between the ironclads the statue features a stylized male nude allegorical figure on water between two iron cleats it is located in messenger mcgolerick park okay all right in virginia the state dedicated the monitor merrimack overlook at anderson park 
on a jetty that overlooks the site of the battle. The park contains several historical markers commemorating both ships. Also, in 1992, Virginia dedicated the $400 million, 4.6-mile-long Monitor Merrimack Memorial Bridge Tunnel. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to the MMM, Triple M Bridge Tunnel. Right. Which is located less than a mile from the site of the battle. Good for them. Wow. We got uh, the the movie Hearts in Bondage, Ugh. 1936, came out. That is about both of this, this uh, the USS Monitor, huh? Tells the story of the building of it. And oh, the tells the story. Okay. 1991, made for television movie called Ironclad, right. as we just said. Uh, the album The Monitor, the second studio album by New Jersey, band Titus Andronicus, ends with a 14-minute track that references the battle. Jeez. Uh, in Canyonlands National Park, Utah, there are two buttes named after moniker, moniker, after modern Merrimack. There is a viewpoint with a placard describing the significance of their names. Cool. Okay. Sleater Kinney recorded an indie rock song referencing the battle ironclad on the album All Hands on Bad One. <laughs> nice. In 2000, the book of the, the book, The Virginia by Winston Brady. Based on the Battle of Hampton Roads, depicts Captain Franklin Buchanan and John Warden as tragic heroes who are injured during the battle as a punishment for their overconfidence created by their powerful, knee-indestructible ships they commanded. Don't read that book. No. <laughs> In the novel, The Claw of the Conciliator by, by Gene Wolfe, set in Earth's future, the narrator tells a story from a book of myths that conflates the battle with the legend of the Theosis and the Minotaur. Minotaur. Okay. And then we had our song called USS Monitor by Civil War, who was a band, apparently. Um, yeah, disregard all that. Maybe the only thing to see there is <laughs> the, the Ironclads <laughs> produced by TNT. Right, 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 That's right. going to do it for this episode. Probably a long one, a little over an hour for us today. That's uh, two battles. That's what happens when you get Class A's and Class B's. You can't do three, four battles on uh, one sitting, but that's okay with us because we ain't in no rush to get through this. But Battle P Ridge. A union win. Battle of Hampton Roads, uh, technically a draw. And then got coming up, Battle of New Bern in North Carolina, a Class B battle. Battle of, first battle of Kernstown in Virginia, Class B battle. Battle of Fort Macon, North Carolina, a Class C battle. That'll probably be our next episode. At least two of them, maybe three. Then we have another major battle, Battle of Glorieta Pass in New Mexico. First A battle in New Mexico there. Got a lot of other stuff coming up down the road, and in a month's time, we got the Battle of Shiloh mm. in Tennessee. Got lots of stuff coming up for us here, and all Union wins, pretty much. Confederates, like we said Jeez. before, they don't get another win until April 15th right. at the Battle of Pachacho Pass. Um, with that, we also do another show called Outlaws and Gunslingers, where we it's kind of a true crime show, kind of like how this show is, except for we do, we've done Wild West episodes. Wild Bill, Billy the Kid, all those famous guys in the Wild West, Prohibition figures. We've done um, gangs. We've done Unabomber, Oklahoma City Bomber, O.J. Simpson murder case. We've done uh, many bank heist episodes, all that good stuff. Anything to do with true crime over there, Outlaws and Gunslingers, wherever you get your podcasts. And that's going to do it for us for this week. We'll be back next Friday with at least another three battles. We are the Mouth of Michiganders. Bang, bang. <laughs>